Polar Pro, challenging the boundaries set by traditional camera gear. Polar Pro is a team of designers who are trailblazing creative freedom for storytellers everywhere. PolarPro.com. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. We are here on the No Film School podcast for the week of December 6th, 2019. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with filmmaker and podcast host, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And I'm Charles Hayne, tech writer, podcast host, filmmaker, all sorts of things. This week on the No Film School podcast, we are starting with an Ask No Film School because it's such a great one and it leads to so many other great places. We're talking about the amazing sizzle reel that Lorene Scarafia made for Hustlers to help get the job. Then we're going to be talking a little bit about the new iPhone 11 Pro because I broke down and got one and so that's going to be the tech news story this week and it's kind of great uh and then we're gonna wrap it all up uh with a little bit more discussion of another movie so that is this week on the no film school podcast okay our top story this week starts with an ask no film school byron q asks does anyone have experience using a short proof of concept to successfully pitch a feature-length project to either investors or production companies? I made this short, and it's funny because he says I made this short as a POC, which I think means person of, um, which I think means proof of concept, but could also mean person of color. Not sure. Or production yes. office coordinator. Um, or production office coordinator. So many. <laughs> were you, Byron? Were you the production office coordinator on this job? And I've shown it to for producers, and then I released it online. When you asked this question, which was a month ago, at 125 views, I looked at it this morning, 350,000 views. You're on fire, Byron. And I'm wondering, can this be used to my advantage when pitching? Or is the view count not high enough? Thanks for any insight. Here's the short, by the way. I wonder how much of the traffic came from the No Film School boards um, mm. of that bump to 350. Regardless, solid short. Not going to ruin any of the spoilers for it. Really well made. Very nice proof of concept. So here's the deal, Byron. Yes, it can absolutely help. However, it is one of only many things that can help. And unfortunately, because of digital media, it's something where so many people do it now. You know, like, I know people who in the 90s would go out and they would make a proof, you know, they'd put $40,000 into a proof of concept for a thing and they would regularly turn that into a million dollars to go make a movie over and over and over again. Because frankly, in the 90s, it was so hard to make anything that if whatever proof of concept you put together for that $40,000. So in the 90s, this was totally like all, like a work of your quality, especially because it's genre and genre is definitely the strongest place to do this in. A work of your quality, you could totally like instantly flip that into a million dollars for like a movie of the week indie feature kind of thing. However... You know, the producers I know who were doing this in the 90s, and you know, they'd get investors who would invest 40000 or whatever to make a proof of concept with the guarantee that if the film got financed, they would get eighty back or whatever. And then in the million-dollar budget, $80,000 went to paying back the proof of concept. That model worked really well in the 90s and doesn't today because it's so much easier to make a proof of concept. I'm not saying yours isn't great. It totally is. But it's still hard to get a feature film made, and your proof of concept is not like a guarantee. I think that, you know, you mentioned that you've talked to a few investors and production companies. I think your your proof of concept is really solid, but I think it's going to be a, a more than a few. I think you're going to end up talking to dozens 
or maybe even more than 100 different producers and investors until you find the people willing to back the feature vision of it. But that doesn't mean proof of concepts aren't really useful just because it doesn't automatically turn into a movie. The other amazing thing you get out of a proof of concept is like artistic evolution and like iteration and sketching. There's this amazing thing that happens in every other art where like you do draft after draft of a screenplay or you do draft after draft of a script or you do draft after draft of a painting or you do a pencil sketch for a painting and then you do the painting. But in filmmaking, even though, yes, we work on the script forever, there's this weird idea that like you work on the script forever and then you shoot it once. And then if it was good, great. And if it wasn't good, well, it sucks to be you. And like one of the things that proof of concepts I've seen happen in a lot of my friends' careers and a little bit in my own career is you discover so much about the movie and what movie you want to make and what your vision is as you do that proof of concept that even if it doesn't help you get it financed, although I think yours probably will, I still think it's like such a valuable part of the process. Which leads us to the next thing, which is like Lorene Scarafia. Scarafia? just released on Twitter. Lorene Scafaria, director of Hustlers, <laughs> just released on Twitter the proof of the, like, sizzle she made for Hustlers. And, like, I mean, first off, it's fucking amazing. But it's also just so clearly part of her artistic process for finding her voice for that project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just would interject real quick, and then, Kath, you can weigh in, too. I have a very, uh, a very distinct experience with proof of concepts, um, and it's actually not different, too different from Byron's, from what it sounds like. Back in 2009, 2010, uh, a creative partner and I put together proof of concept. It was a short. It was also kind of a alternate World War II thing. And it hit half a million views pretty quick. And it got us agents, managers, people making all kinds of promises they couldn't keep, meetings all over town, and... You know, we were, it was, that was a time, I think, when the tech was just advancing to where you could really, really, like, push it on. We did stuff with miniatures and models and CG as well, but, like, it wasn't as quite as widespread as it is now in terms of, like, the quality of camera you can get your hands on and the image you can create quickly on your own. Um, But it was happening, and people were spending a lot of money. Um, Mm. I think around the time that happened, and one of the reasons we kind of caught fire was that someone made a deal, like a six-figure deal for a project that a guy created, like a proof of concept that was just like aliens attacking a city and just blowing it up. Um, It was kind of like pre-Battle Los Angeles and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, that proof of concept experience was fruitful. For me, it was definitely like a big foot in the door thing. And I know, like Charles said, things have changed a lot. But um, what Charles also said that is true is that it didn't get our movie made. (laughs) What it got (laughs) us was it got us a lot of meetings. It got us a lot of, uh, you know, promises, like I said, uh, like, you know, we we maybe didn't choose the right path with it. So we shot it. Um, we said, hey, let's pitch it as a feature. So we went to places like Bad Robot and, you know, every major place and we were pitching this feature and we were these two guys who the only thing we'd done was this, of note, was this proof of concept. So people would be like, yeah, that's a great idea, but we're not going to give you $100 million to make the feature version of this, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think what, we kind of backed ourselves into a corner there because it, probably would have been best if we'd said, hey, just give us a little money and let us make the, 
you know, web series version or let us like, you know, let us develop something else or like instead we we swung for the fences. And I think that, you know, what you can do with the proof of concept is you can start to build your reel. You can start to build your identity and maybe you can use it to get uh, open directing assignments or like instead of just saying, I want to make this big expensive, I want to make the big expensive version of this, which is going to be a really tough sell today, just as it was a really tough sell then. Mm -hmm. I mean, we went off and wrote a feature script about this thing that like everybody ended up passing on and then the project died and we had other things that came out of it, but that was kind of frustrating because like Charles said, it's like, you you shot it and that's it. It was like that was the end end of the story of that project. And I think that you should be careful with what you do with it because you've teased interest, obviously. And so like that interest is your capital to spend. So I would advise that you spend it very wisely. And um, you know, a- agents and managers in our case really pushed us to go for the biggest try to land the biggest thing possible because that's going to be in their interest. But your interest might be mm. something small. That's just the next step. That's, those are my two cents. I mean, yeah. Well, Kath, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I, mean, I think that's, the, that's really interesting. I think uh, there's so many things that I wanted to say about this, but I think like with sometimes proof of concepts really help if you have a small, movie like a one to three million dollar movie like you were talking about charles in the 90s this happened a lot more i think i can think of two examples uh from san francisco which is where i'm from um last black man in san francisco had a great proof of concept um that was just like pretty simple shot digitally voiceover um just following jimmy fails around san francisco on a skateboard and captured the mood so well captured the character and like sort of outlined the like tension of the plot. And so that being so clear and so clearly, you know, so clearly defining what the feature would be, I think really worked in their favor. Sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, like George, like what you were saying, if you're, if you're trying to make a major big budget movie based on a proof of concept, it's such a long jump to make. Yes. Um, but with smaller budget films, it it can be, uh, it can really be an, I mean, I think it can be an asset in any situation, but I don't know, maybe it helps more when you're looking for something small. The other example that I could think of was, um, Diary of a Teenage Girl. That movie's so good. I love that movie. I love that movie. Marielle Heller, of course, is like now also doing amazing things following that. But she made a proof of concept similarly that was, um basically like a music video to Maybe by Janis Joplin and just like sort of lots of visual imagery following this girl around San Francisco. I don't even think the girl in the short ended up playing the lead in the movie. I think it was someone else. But that in itself, it was just like a two minute clip that just established the mood, who she was, what she did in her day to day and like this feeling of like teen angst. And the short is great and it doesn't necessarily need tons of views on YouTube. It doesn't need, you know, to make any money. It's just something that you can show people like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And like you said, Charles, like, this is my process. Um, 
Well, and also, yeah, like, yeah. let's all not forget, and I, it's going to sound like I'm being harder on a particular director than I mean to be, but Carrie Conran, Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow, is, like, the yeah. best possible story of a proof of concept. Did a proof of concept. I don't remember what the original proof of concept budget was, but managed to get Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow made, which is, you know, based on a proof of concept that, like, I believe he did mostly, was it with his brother or his friend? Yes. And... Yeah, it was, I think it was brothers, and I think that, that is an amazing story. Yeah. They got, the, the, literally the whole industry, like, rolled out the red carpet for those guys, <laughs> and it's a crazy story. You gotta... Oh, man, we should cover it in depth. Anyway, well, and, go ahead. And so, the, you know, they made a 40 to $80 million movie starring Angelina Jolie and Jude Law and a whole bunch of other amazing people. And, like, for the time, 2004, there's amazing visual imagery in there. But careers often, careers often have an escalating process of challenge. You know, like a video game. You know, each level you play in the video game gets a little harder and you learn new skills that then help you in the next level. Jumping from a project you make with your brother hanging out to a $80 million movie navigating mm. Hollywood stars is n is not a transition. Even, like, I don't know that talent exists. I don't think I believe in talent. But, like, that is a very hard transition for anyone to land. There's so many escalating I, experiences of, like, struggling with a difficult star on your indie movie mm -hmm. when you know you have more clout and they're not Angelina Jolie. Or, and I don't know that Angelina Jolie is difficult. I actually hear she's great to work with. But, no. but like, managing big performers, managing big budgets, managing big scale, and also, like, having, like, no matter how many screenwriting classes you take or books you read... I learned more about screenwriting from the editing process on my first feature than anything else I've ever done. Like sitting and like he skipped that. He didn't go make that. You know, even yes. the Wachowski brothers went and made Bound and I imagine learned a tremendous amount about screen about story editing Bound before they were able to get um, The Matrix made. And so you, you, you kind of don't want like I would say I don't want my next project you know, if for some reason I tripped and fell on a lottery ticket that had $200 million, I wouldn't put all $200 million in one movie. I mean, my wife wouldn't let me, but also I don't <laughs> think that it's the right next. You know, there's a there's escalating challenges. Yeah, I, I think that's an amazingly salient point you guys are both making because what happened to me was that we had people working with us and advising us who were looking to land the biggest possible deal. And, and it's hard not to go for that when the people mm. around you are suggesting that you do it and they're talking you up like you're going to make blank and you're going to, and this is the kind of money we're talking about. And these people want to do this. How do you say no? Like mm. everybody dreams big, but in hindsight, it's such a great point. We eventually went ahead and made like a really tiny indie film, like a micro budget film. And we had successes and failures within that process. Those things taught us so much. I can't imagine what happens when you, like you can't learn, you don't wanna learn at the highest level. And so many filmmakers, the industry is not good at letting, it's not like say sports where there's a minor leagues. No. You get your swings at a, at a mm. high level. It's very hard, the industry's not kind to failure but failure is critical to growth and development yep so you have to find a way to make mistakes and learn and i you know ryan Koo of no film school um <laughs> he has often said he's he said i feel like the industry eats its own it doesn't 
it's it's hard for us to develop talent because we like if we put someone up on the pedestal and say like okay here's all, here's your two hundred million dollars after your proof of concept and they fail it's like okay forget it moving on oh yeah when that it's better must have been an would, awful director and they just didn't have it and it's like what the hell is this mm-hmm. it you're talking about and like right. could they have done you know could they have done fifty four million dollar movies in with that two hundred million and had fifteen of them be great. Like, I mean, I was one example I always think about is like, well, there's all those guys like there's like James Cameron working on Roger Corman movies and yeah. making a Piranha movie. But there's also people like like I know a lot of people love Hard Eight. But to me, uh, Boogie Nights was like this amazing revelation of this young filmmaker. But he he made a feature like he'd yeah. been he'd stumbled around through a feature. Mm-hmm. And like it it's not as in my opinion, it's not as good, but it's also like, it's not as energetic. It's not like, I'm sure so much comes from that first time through that so many filmmakers have before they make the one that really grabs everyone's attention. Um, I mean, some people just like, there's there's always going to be Orson Welles, but you know, he did Mercury <laughs> Theater for years, right? Yeah, so I mean, he had his own like process of developing and he was actually, I think, like a genius, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mark Duplass has that great keynote. I think it was at South by many years ago where he says the cavalry is not coming. Like everyone's going to tell you that the cavalry is coming after you make your first short or make your first proof of concept or make your first feature or whatever. But he's like, don't listen to the agents, don't listen to the managers, don't listen to the studio executives. Like, get back with your friends, your crew, and make a tiny feature that is totally representative of you and your passion and what you care deeply about. And, like, keep working on defining yourself and your voice as long as you can. And, you know, for them it was, like, multiple movies and then... Yeah, no, you just gotta... I wish I'd listened to this podcast 10 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, 90% of what you end up teaching are, are things you wish you'd heard when you were younger, right? Like, <laughs> I've, I've always been one of those people that's not good at, you know, uh, there, there's people who learn lessons the easy way, which is they watch someone else make the mistake, and then they're like, ooh, that's a mistake, I'm not going to do that. And then there's people who learn things the hard way, and I'm one of those people who doesn't even learn the hard way. Like, I'll repeat a mistake, like, four <laughs> times, and then, like, the fourth or fifth time, I'll be like, you know, should I stop doing this? Is this not working? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, most of I think most of what we talk about on here are things that I wish 22 year old me knew. Um, but he didn't. Yeah. And here we are. Um, and now I'm helping other 22 year olds. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, and there's no shame in losing your teeth on a shoot. Yeah. But what was also interesting about this is it really dovetailed really nicely with the uh, piece that ran this week where Lorraine Scafaria shared her sizzle reel for Hustlers, which was amazing. Now, this is a slightly different thing. A sizzle reel is usually, and in this case it is, uh, somebody called it a klepto clip once, which I think is a little too clever and isn't really going <laughs> to stick. But uh, it is, you're taking shots from source material, right? You're taking shots from other movies, other TV shows, other places, and you're cutting it together. And this is really common in the like studio pitch process, investor pitch process, director pitch. Like Maybe a film is financed and they're hiring directors, and directors want to communicate, here's what my vision is, here's what my passion is. Here's my take. Super common. This is a very, very common thing. I remember once I was scouting this location we couldn't afford for a shoot, and the person showing us around the location was like, oh, yeah, Gore Verbinski hired us last week to shoot a sizzle reel for a movie he's pitching. 
thing. And, you know, I mean, it was like a $20,000 a day location that we definitely could not afford. Um, and, you know, so at the high level, people even shoot these. At the medium to indie level, it's a klepto clip, which is not going to stick, but it's funny. And um, what's <laughs> great about the um, the one from Hustlers is that it starts being so normal. Like, I've seen so many horror movie, thriller movie, sizzle reels that open with, like, a montage of strippers. Like, that is, I have a friend who, like, he was trying to get this movie made. I mean, not a friend, a a professional collaborator, a a guy I knew and worked with occasionally, was working on raising, a like, a psycho killer in the world of Hollywood. And, like, his trailer opened in a very similar way. Like, it is a, like, it opens in this very, but then it pivots so perfectly into this story in the sizzle of like empowerment, friendship, connection, people, like owning of sexuality. It's like a really fantastic sizzle where you're like so much thought went into the structure of it. It's not just two minutes of the nicest looking shots from a bunch of movies. It is something where like we are taking these shots from movies to tell you about flavor, to tell you about tone, but also to tell you about structure to tell you about, like, misdirect. Like, we're going to open with one direction, and that's going to be a misdirect, and then we're going to take you somewhere else. And it's like, yeah, I mean, if I were financing movies, which I'm not, but if I were, that is totally the director's sizzle, where I'd be like, I would like to meet that person. And I think that person got the job. And then they did get the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really cool because, it yeah, it starts with just great shots of strippers stripping, and then it becomes violent and criminal and crazy, and then it becomes about friendships and empowerment and bonds and it pulls together shots that evoke those emotions from the most powerful movies that have done. I mean, you got Thelma and Louise in there. Like, there's so much going on in there that we quickly can see and recognize because it's like they're, um, they're touchstones, right, culturally, for us to identify what she's looking for, what she's going for. So I, it works. It's exactly what you'd want to do to convey, like, this is how this – this is the – from a storytelling standpoint, it, it kind of tells the story of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I really love that you shared this, Charles, because, uh, well, I keep coming back to the question at the end of the Ask No Film School where he said it has 125,000 views. Like, is this enough to get money? But it's like the views are totally not the thing that matters. What really matters is the strength of the concept and like your ability to relay an idea and also, you know, your confidence. But um and you see that in this in this hustler sizzle reel. It's like, oh, wow, this person knows what they're doing. They know what they are trying to make. And they have the confidence to tell the story. It's great. Well, and the view count on it before it was shared publicly was probably seven, right? Like her mm-hmm. and her editor <laughs> yeah. watched it a million yeah. times, but that counts as two views because it's two people in this case. And then they showed <laughs> it to a couple of investors. They might have had 10 views of the finished cut. And it got the yeah, movie made. And it's all just a bunch of movies that other people have made, but arranged in this way that tells something new, you know? Yeah, that really like... I would say view count counts if you're trying to create a sense that you have something that people really want Hmm. in terms of your content, like Hmm. some virality. But that's less of a buzzword now than it was years ago. But I would say like you you, you could be looking to do multiple things with this. One path is by saying like, hey, I created this thing and people love it. So you might want to like get involved. The other thing is you could say, I have this idea and I can execute it. And that's Mm. sort of two different things. You could Mm. be doing both, I think. But like, I think that 
maybe when he's talking view or asking about view counts, it's like, I honestly don't know. Like, I'm sure some of these people have numbers in mind out there, but I don't know what the number would be where they where they would take note and mm. say, yeah, that's got so many views on YouTube that we, sh- we would consider that a, a hit. Um, I mean, it must yeah, be in the million. It must have to be in the millions now, I would think. I don't know, though. I honestly don't know. Well, it's I don't also... know either. I mean, I was recently, like, coordinating a, a commercial, and we were hiring, um, like, Instagram uh, influencers as the talent. And the agency that we were going with had, like, noted specifically how many followers each of these influencers had. But some of them were, like, you know, a couple thousand. No biggie. Yeah. Well, I mean, 10,000 is mm-hmm. the new target for being a micro-influencer. Um, mm, it, I don't wow. even. I didn't yeah. even know that. That is the, that. Yeah, oh I, I I only know that because I listen to last podcasts on the left, and they make fun of that a lot. Um, but the interesting, <laughs> I I also think. Look, I really like your proof of concept. I think it's very interesting. I hope you get your movie made. I don't know that YouTube views help the way they even did in George's time ten years ago, because I think YouTube has pivoted. Like, in the 2005 to 2009 space, we really didn't know what YouTube was going to be. And so, like, yeah. a short film breaking out on YouTube and having a lot of hits and having a million views is like, maybe this is a thing. Maybe there's an audience. Maybe it's yeah. whatever. In 2019, I think YouTube has very much pivoted towards being a social network, which is fine. I don't even think it it's deliberately its did that. It's as well. Yeah. yeah. I think it became that organically where it became about personality and followers and, and all of those other things. And so I, I don't think... Like, unless you had, like, 75 million organic unpaid-for views, I don't think YouTube short film, like, I don't think the view counts what's going to help you. I think it's the, it's who views it, to go back to Kath's point, of, like, the quality of the work and then who you get to see that work are going to mm-hmm. be the things that really help. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're an influencer in a certain space, if you're like the number one dentist on YouTube and you have 75,000 followers, <laughs> that makes you a huge celebrity in the dental. I'm going to, I know on Twitter, we're going to hear from the actual number one dentist on YouTube and they're going to have like 8 I million think, followers but and I I'm going to feel bad. I think you guys, are, I, I think you guys are both make, uh, coming back to another good point, which is that YouTube is actually a distribution platform now. Like it is. And it's where people go to make money with their content. It's not where people go to farm content so much. Mm. Maybe they go to farm talent occasionally. But like that, like you're talking about like hiring influencers. I mean, there's agencies that just, I know people who work at them just rep influencers. Mm -hmm. And and there's a whole thing. I mean, in in what we're calling George's era 10 years ago, (laughs) the thing was like, can can you get someone... Can you get somebody on Twitter with a lot of followers involved and things like that? Like there used to be that's that was sort of starting to be a consideration, but it wasn't like the driving, you know, now YouTube is where people make their own careers on YouTube and then they branch out to other things, but they're making a lot of money there. Do so they branch out to other things? Really... I thought we've established that YouTubers don't cross over. I thought we tried it like seven times and then, <laughs> no, I'm, I, 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 I've been in those meetings with people. I remember being in a meeting in like 2014, 2015 where somebody was like, all right, so I've written this indie movie and there's a role for everybody with more than 10 million subscribers. Logan Paul has a role. Everybody has a role and it's going to be this thing. And, it'll, and then if all the subscribers come see the movie in the theater and like, I feel like people have studied it and like actually what you want out of a YouTuber is you want a feeling of like connection and knowing and like you get that in a way on YouTube. And like, is there an example of someone who went from YouTube to like action movie star? Is that a thing? I don't know. But you're 
your summary of that pitch just makes me want to like put my head well, through. No, oh my the, god, uh, it was the, amazing. The, he was so excited the, the about lead, it. The lead in the live action Aladdin. She was discovered on YouTube. Right? Oh, okay, I'm wrong. Just, okay. She was like a she was a singer, I think, and she just did covers yeah. of of those songs. I did not oh, know no, that. Or was it West Side Story? It's one of those two. I'm sorry, it's one of those two. I can't remember. But I think it is incredibly rare, and I think that you're making a good point that like the people who watch YouTube. I mean, you know, my cousin, for example, I was chatting with him about this. He's in high school. He plays video games. He watches YouTube, and he watches um, Twitch. Twitch. Yeah. That Twitch. video yeah. game social network. Maybe he never TikTok he never too. goes to the movies. He has no interest in going to the movies. He never watches full length films unless his parents are watching something at home and make him sit on the couch or whatever. He's only interested in his friends on YouTube who are playing video games and talking about pop culture. And I think it's like you're right. There's there's different audiences. There's yeah yeah. He's not gonna sit down for The Irishman. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're living in a world where media and audiences are extremely fragmented, but it's okay because mm-hmm. it means that you can do niche things, which is actually cool. And it also means and like what what people forget, and I think the industry often forgets at the highest level is that you don't need everyone to like the same thing for it to be successful. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people out there and they get things all these different ways and they can and them all liking different things from different sources is good. It's good for business but it's also good for creatives because it means you can find your niche. And like I I just keep going so like again I'm informed by this experience but like that proof of concept we did had a very strong niche audience that existed but we kind of left it because we thought what if we do the what they used to call the four quadrant version oh, God. Right? to right, try and yeah. capture everything and that like it look that's what avengers does but that's not what um a lot of filmmakers and creatives should target because uh you can build your audience and build your voice and your brand and your and keep creating things and have outlets and platforms and without having to find a way to appeal to every single person which is a very difficult thing to do well i remember being at a at a dinner with a disney executive and this was like 2004 2005 and first off at one point we were talking about wes anderson's first movie and he was like rushmore and i was like no no no, no. wes anderson made this movie bottle rocket before and the executive literally looked at me and was like bottle rocket's not a movie and then just kept going in the conversation which like because from it wasn't financed by a studio so he didn't count it in the movies of wes anderson yeah and at, at another point, we got in a conversation about Pirates of the Caribbean. I actually really liked the first one. The series, I haven't seen the rest, but I enjoyed the first one. And he gave me this whole speech about how the first one was the perfect movie because there was <laughs> Orlando Bloom for the teenage girls. There was Johnny Depp for boys of all ages. And Johnny Depp was there. Mm. And, no, no, no. Teenage boys liked Keira Knightley. Teenage girls liked... Um, What's his face? Uh, Orlando Bloom. Bloom. And then Johnny Depp was there for the over 25s. And like literally there was no conversation of like how fun the script was. Ted (laughs) Elliott and Terry Rossio's like amazing dialogue. Like Uh, there was nothing. It was literally he was just like, man, perfect four quadrant movie. They just cast the shit out of that. It was like. And and you know what my favorite? Like if I can just I have a story just to tag on to that. My favorite one of my favorite Hollywood things. I think that like I think Johnny Depp playing that part. Oh, it's and great. Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man. These were things that both studios resisted so hard. 
And I, there's a story about Disney execs seeing dailies from Pirates of the Caribbean the first time, and they were so disturbed and concerned by what Johnny Depp was doing. They were sure it wasn't going to work. And it is the main reason that that thing works. Oh, my God. Because it's weird. I mean, no offense and, to Orlando Bloom. You could Robert... cut Orlando Bloom out of that first movie, and it would be slightly better. I forgot he was in that movie. Right? Yeah, there's no, nothing else about the movie. I mean, it's good, and it's great director, Gore Verbinski, and there's a lot of good – it's Bruckheimer, and there's a lot of, like, fun – but, like, it's the Johnny Depp thing. Oh, my That's God. That's what made mm-hmm. it. Just like Robert Downey Jr. launched Marvel. Like, yeah. I think that people forget that so often the weird thing, the, the thing that, that might be risky, mm-hmm. risk is the... Risk is the key, but like now we're so far afield <laughs> from talking about proof of concept. Right. But like concept. they they say hindsight's twenty twenty. You can say like, of course, Johnny Depp, twenty five and over. It's like people saw that performance and were like, oh my god, what have we done? We really stepped in it this time. Like this is a mess. <laughs> yeah. And lo and behold. Polar Pro, a company that strives to challenge the boundaries set by traditional camera gear, have engineered a brand new product into their flagship lineup. While setting out to make a splash in the cinematography space, Polar Pro has created an ultra-lightweight matte box system called Basecamp, which was designed to cater to the needs of a run-and-gun cinematographer. Most creatives within the photo and video industry strive to be seen as professional cinematographer rather than just another creator in a saturated market. Just like in mountaineering, Basecamp is the point in the journey that separates the professionals from the rest of the pack that has made it this far. When using the Basecamp filter system, it will enable you to elevate your content as you ascend towards the goal of ultimate professionalism. So the question is, are you going to join the ascent? Head to our Instagram stories to check out Polar Pro's new map box and be part of the climb. So... Tech news this week is a little bit weird. I actually am going to talk a little bit about hands-on time with the iPhone 11 Pro. Uh, We don't do a lot on the podcast of hands-on time. We tend to do more like hands-on review-y stuff on the the website. And I might write a review on the website for this, nofilmschool.com. But first off, it was Thanksgiving week, so there wasn't really any other tech news stories to cover. But (laughs) beyond that, uh, I also, I got one over the weekend, and it is... Look, the Pro is obviously a branding thing and who knows, like, but like, this is an amazing camera. It is, It first off, everybody should know this, but if you don't know it already, um, the images coming off the sensor in your iPhone camera or your Android camera or whatever are processed by the software. And they deliberately are processed by the software in an attempt to make it work in all situations. So like the example I always give is in a low light situation, if you watch, like if you're recording video in low light, if you watch the video, It's going to have all these dancing dots on it while you're recording. But as soon as you click stop, it's going to process it with noise correction and it's going to look all smeary and disgusting. So even, and this camera is amazing in low light, but even there, if you're in a dark enough situation, you'll see those beautiful noisy dots. But Apple's decided noisy dots aren't as nice as noise correction and they turn noise correction on the video. So the first thing all filmmakers should do is get Filmic Pro. It's a $30 app. And Filmic Pro is an app that is designed to to get you access to the least processed footage. So your footage from Filmic might look noisier than your than an identical shot shot with the normal iPhone app, but that's okay because noise is fine. And if you're gonna fix noise, fix it in post with like a big tower computer or at least a laptop where you can like fine tune the settings, the internal noise correction on the phones. I hate. 
Um, so use Filmic Pro, but oh my God, with Filmic Pro, and actually even with the native camera app, uh, the the three camera solution is a legitimate improvement in imaging, and it is a major leap forward in uh, the Apple ecosphere. Also, I just want to point this out. I got the battery case. I got it in pink. Um, and the battery <laughs> case has a built-in camera button now. And again, it's one of those things that seems like a gimmick, but you just press it and hold it, and all of a sudden the camera app is open, and you are able to take pictures of an, an, an event that is happening faster. And it was... That's huge. I can't tell you how annoying I find it, that it, I always miss the moment, because I got to mm-hmm. open my phone, I got to get my camera app open, I got I feel like I'm in a commercial, but it's yeah. like really annoying. Well, I mean, we're just going to dad out here for a moment, and this is going to be the dad <laughs> cast for a second. And like the camera button is really yes, like, oh my yeah. God, my kid is doing something cute. I would like to capture their <laughs> cuteness as fast as physically possible. Um, yes. And the fact that you can literally, on the external exterior of the thing hold the camera button the camera immediately pops open and you can immediately start getting the photo i've taken even more photos of my incredibly cute baby over thanksgiving weekend than i normally would have um so it is an interesting period that we are in uh that the quality of this camera has come so so far i think we are you know ryan johnson posted his great little video review wandering around paris with the camera i think we're in a very interesting space one thing i also wanted to point out is so it's a three camera thing, which you know, if any of you came up in like Bolex Airy S era, <laughs> it, it's very familiar to having like the three lens turret that you could click between. But they're actually using image processing to give you fields of view in between the two, so you can actually do smooth hmm. zooms in between the lenses, which I find fascinating. I do notice yeah. a little bit of quality drop because obviously, like each of the lens settings, you're looking at the actual lens setting as opposed to when you're zooming between it's sort of using algorithms to identify, but the quality drop is actually really minor. Um, so yeah, that is the 11 X, the, the 11 pro. Um, I think maybe, I mean, pro is a marketing term, but I think we, uh, we are going to see some really interesting stuff. I will, I do want to let people know that one of the big marquee marketing things that came out was originally, uh, filmic is going to let you record multiple cameras at once. There's three cameras built into it, and Filmic is going to let you record up to two at a time. So you can do multicam of, like, your wide shot and your close-up at once. It's not out yet, which is a real bummer. The camera's been out two months, but it will be out soon, Filmic says. I just checked their site. So that is on its Can I just – and I just want to quickly add, like, we are really aware of what people are trying to do with this iPhone 11. We've been talking about it since release. Um there is a story up on nofilmschool.com. It went up uh, Tuesday morning. I discovered it, and it's it's kind of blazing around because it's I think it's semi-viral. So the John Wick director, David Leach, is that how you guys pronounce it? I'm not David Leitch. It's so he shot a commercial. Um, he shot a commercial for it of a snowball fight on the iPhone 11 Pro, and it is amazing. And he just goes all out and it's really cool. And uh, this is like another example. Like we talked about um, filmmakers who have uh, like Ryan Johnson, who've gotten their hands on it and done cool stuff. It's like, I don't know. You got to check this thing out and, you know, keep, keep your eye out for what people are doing with it because it's, I think it's going to change. Like we, we were just talking about sizzle reels. I think it's really going to change what you can do and what you can show people quickly about like what your ideas are. Now it's really coming to the point where 
your ideas are going to be the key thing because you can get mm-hmm. the image, right? So mm-hmm. where are your, like, what are you going to do with it? Like a snowball fight, like making that really cool is a fun idea. Like, but, but like the idea of, um, it's hard to get a beautiful image. It's not hard anymore. Well, so well, it's also one of those now, things of like the the image quality has been so good in very restricted circumstances for a long time. Like Wolf of Wall Street has an iPhone shot in it, but it's just a close up of the seatbelt sign coming on that the VFX supervisor, you know, was flying, knew they needed the shot, grabbed it real quick. They cut it in. It looked fine. <laughs> but that's a very low contrast lighting situation, right? It's a close up on one little light coming on, not a lot of bright light. And what we're seeing, I think, is we're seeing the envelope of situations where you're going to get acceptable imagery open up wider and wider and wider. Are we in a situation where you're going to be able to shoot every single lighting situation beautifully? Hells no, of course not. There's still the uh, Mini LF and it's a great camera, but we're starting to be in this place where like the envelope is getting pretty big of stuff where you're like, I can just shoot that on an iPhone and it's going to legitimately just cut in fine, right? And what's interesting to me about a snowball fight is a snowball fight is usually on a sunny day, which is notoriously difficult on digital. And digital has really clippy problems with high light whites. So like a snowball on a sunny day is a very high contrast situation. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I'm excited to see. I think that is a particularly challenging situation to work with um, small sensors and small sensor processing. So yeah. Yeah, I mean- and I also think, like, even if it's not working its way into your pro content, uh, pro or or whatever, you know, um, the like we talked to Roger Deakins not long ago about shooting 1917, and he talked about using like a Sony point and shoot, as he said, to try and capture rehearsals so he could start to create basically like a schematic for how the film would be shot because it's the wonders, etc. And now I just think more and more like people are just gonna pull out their iPhones. They're going to like shoot things with their iPhones when they're testing. They're going to not necessarily testing like for the finished look, but just so they get a feel for what their shots might be. Like it'll become really a storyboarding tool or a previs tool. Like, and I can't see what would be better, frankly, because that's what you're going to have with you all the time. Well, the only argument that could be slightly better, and we'll talk about this next week, is the Sigma FP, which is almost as small, but lets you attach your actual shooting lens. So, because right now, like Artemis, if you guys don't use Artemis, Artemis is a great previs app. It loads on your phone and it gives you all your lenses, but it doesn't actually match field of view perfectly. But the Sigma FP is like this. It's like basically the size of a pack of cards, but you can mount your real cinema lens to it. So you can actually previs exactly what your field of view and your blocking is going to be with like basically an iPhone hanging off the back. It's a little bigger than an iPhone, but it's not that much. Crazy. Yeah. What I mean, a it's, time to be a filmmaker. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> I feel like, I mean, I, I, I feel like the it's such a game changer. It's going to, I mean, it shoots 4K, right? Yep. Isn't that, that's yeah. insane yeah. to me. I'm kind of hoping that it will lead to uh, like a re-embracing of old formats. <laughs> like my friend just told me the other day that he bought a mini DV camera just to yeah. start playing around with it. I'm like, that sounds great. Let's do that. Yes. You know, yeah. let's have a, some fun. A little bit of pixel vision flash. Phone. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I have a friend who yeah. still continually works in mini DV because he's like, oh, the cameras are so simple, but I have all the controls I want. Like the DVX100 mm-hmm. gives me all of the, like, I can control the white balance. So everything is manual, but, you know, it, like, costs nothing and it's really simple and, like, he knows how to use it. So he still That's shoots. That's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Although at it's some point we're going to run out of tape. It's not a phone. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. All right. I I mean, 
Yeah, there's like playing with medium is the best, and and having these great me- like high level mediums that are that are easily readily available means we can do more with old medium and yeah. mixing it in, and like you know just look at uh look at what Quentin Tarantino did in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's some amazing stuff. We also have a cool post up about that. Well, no also let's let's not forget that we haven't <laughs> we have yet to actually kill any medium. In most major cities in America, you can go to opera. In every city in America, you can go see theater. Like, you can still oh, carve yeah. out a marble. You radio. Can, like, yeah. We have, there is not a medium that I can think of that we have successfully murdered, except three strip Technicolor. That's the only one that was so expensive that it died when, a, when another thing came along. So, like, it's just more, more options. All right. Last up this week, our final topic this week. Holy shit. Knives out. First off, huge box office success, which I was surprised by just because I'm always confused by the box office. Um, <laughs> like, it never makes sense to me. When a movie I like does really well at the box office, I'm always like, how did that happen? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. But, Kath, you have also seen it. You have thoughts? Yes. Um, loved it. Got to see it uh, with a Q&A with Ryan following, which was awesome because I've loved him since Brick. Um I, I think, so my thoughts on this are also influenced by the Q&A. Um, I was surprised to learn that from when he put pen to paper to movie being finished and tied up with a bow, it was just one calendar year. What? Like he started writing in January. Uh, he said he had a workable draft by June and was rewriting, I guess, I don't know exactly what the relationship was with the studio, uh, like when they got greenlit or funding or whatever. But it was so fast because Daniel Craig signed on and then they had six weeks to like make the movie. Um, oh, wow. So, so yeah, I personally like didn't love Knives Out. Um, I liked Knives Out, but I felt like it was kind of talky at times. And I think I would, I'm going to blame the like short, like production time span for that. Uh, But the definitely like the staging was incredible. Uh, The way that he shot it somehow, like getting all 10 actors in a room and like making that happen in a really beautiful way. And of course, like the whodunit plot, like how do you write a script like that? Um, really impressive. But yeah, we can talk about what you loved <laughs> and what I had some issues with. But so I thought it, it was good. It was definitely super talky. I don't mind a talking movie. As long as you are simultaneously doing interesting things visually, I'm okay mm-hmm. with a talking movie. I mean, if you're a talking movie and there's literally nothing visually going on and it could just be a podcast, I would rather it be a podcast. But I felt like there was enough of like visual gaggery and play and exploration that it balanced out for what I thought was a pretty, like obviously a very conversationally driven uh, piece. I also felt like it was a real attempt at like American myth-making. Like if you look at the traditional, we don't have an American Sherlock Holmes or an American um, Mm. Agatha Christie hero. So I think the attempts, I mean, using an English actor, but to craft an American detective hero in ben, uh, Benoit Blanc was really fascinating. And so I thought it was really interesting to look at that in terms of like 
you know, I don't know that he plans more in this series. I don't know that I don't know if he'd be comfortable with the character being taken over by other people he works with. But I thought that there was especially interesting to me as a film watching it as a filmmaker that like is coming off our largest current myth. The Star Wars, like he made a Star Wars movie mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. Star Wars movie. He was grappling with like cultural myths, cultural heroes, the reaction of people to those heroes. So I thought it was really interesting to see what I think people have called an American Poirot. And, you know, Daniel Craig doing a Southern accent is always really enjoyable for me. So I'm I'm on it. I'm in it for that. Anna Darmus was also just kind of amazing. I find... She was um, amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the movie, very early on, you see that she makes a mistake and regrets it. And, like... There are not a lot of movies that really capture that 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 sensation of like, oh, my God, I've made a small mistake with huge consequences and like the pain and agony of that feeling. If you are a particular kind of person that like like she carries that so well where you're like, I have made a mistake and there's nothing I can do to fix it is the is the engine of her character. And she's so great at it and does Mm -hmm. it so well. And like she is phenomenal. Um, you know, yeah, so I mean, there I were all of the, those well, I things. I think what I love most about the movie was the the whole, the, how he was able to tie it into what's actually happening in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love that. That's that strain of the plot line is awesome. Was um, it? Can I ask you guys a couple questions about it? I haven't yeah. seen it and I don't really want to, but, <laughs> but maybe I should. Um, it, it doesn't. Well, it just doesn't like. You know, if we're just talking about taste, like I, there's something about it that, like, from advertising, from what I know of it, that there was a part of me like, oh no, I, that's that's definitely not something I want to see. But I'm curious because Charles, we tend to have very similar opinions. Um, did it feel? It felt to me a very Clue campy ish. It's is not that quite not as campy true? as Clue. It, there is but a little bit of camp. There's absolutely yeah. some camp. I'm not going to say there's not camp. There, it is nowhere <laughs> near as campy as Clue. Although Clue was like my favorite movie as a child. Um, Clue's fun. Yeah, yeah no, but I, it's I'm not, not saying it I don't. It is not as campy as Clue. There's camp, but it's toned down and it's refined. What I think is interesting in, in hearing you guys talk about it is you're talking about things that sound. So my, my I don't have anything against camp in general. What I felt like in seeing advertisements and just a general sense of the movie is that it's not a movie that in this point in time that I personally feel is like relevant or interesting to me. But like I, the way you're talking about it, suddenly I'm thinking, oh, this does sound relevant and interesting to me. Like you're talking about th- themes and elements that I now sort of am interested in. So I wonder if at least as far as I'm concerned, and I'm really a strange audience to target, but I wonder if maybe the advertising didn't quite, obviously it worked for a lot of people. They had a big weekend, but I'm just, you know, speaking from my own perspective. I think you're right in saying that when I saw the trailer, I had no interest in seeing it either. I actually, I I, uh, went to Toronto and could have seen it there, but I chose to see a bunch of other movies with Asian American actors instead because I was like, this is just a bunch of white white people in a movie, you know, besides Lakeith Stanfield. But, um... Yeah, it, and it also of, feels like yeah. movie stars who who are chewing the, the scenery a bit. Like it's kind of like I don't I don't really need to see that. Like right. it doesn't appeal to me. But right. go on. But but I think he does a good job with you know the whole like sort of part of the premise of the movie is that Andre Armas plays um, this uh, caretaker for Christopher Plummer, and she's from a, an unnamed Latin American country. No one in the family can get the name right. They never remember where she's from. 
and she's undocumented. And so like that is sort of, beca- sort of becomes integral to the plot, actually. I see. Um, which is cool. I love that part of it. That is One, interesting. Yes. Yeah. He but also- it is a very star-studded cast and like was so star-studded that I was like, why? I don't know if I, I felt the same way. I was like, I don't know if I want to see this movie. Interesting that a star-studded cast turned you off. The star-studded cast didn't necessarily bother me. I guess I just, I mean, honestly, I don't know that I ever saw the trailer. I think I just was like, ooh, Ryan Johnson. I'll go see a Ryan Johnson movie. Right. I I literally don't think I've seen the trailer. I just, I tend to, I tend to be really loyal. If you've made three or four, honestly, if you've made one movie that's good enough, I will probably see three or four of your next movies to see if you oh, keep yeah. doing Oh, yeah, Brick was so good. Brick, Brick is, was yeah. so good. Also, I like The Last Jedi. I know I'm the, the internet is going to come for me over that, but I enjoyed The Last <laughs> Jedi. I thought it was really great. But I also thought there was a really interesting thing that he was playing around with. One of the things that we're always talking about uh, when when you talk about any kind of these movies is like, who had... Who has what information men? Like, what does the audience know? And what do the characters know? And how do the relationship between the two drive, like, the tension, the mystery, or the suspense? And he plays so many really amazing games in this screenplay. Really? So that, so that's exciting to me. Because that, so that's, um, that's dramatic tension, I think is what it's called. Well, it's the difference and between something... tension, mystery, and suspense, right? And I always get this right. wrong, and but I like think... suspense yes. is when the it's audience the... knows and the characters don't. Mystery is when the characters know and the audience doesn't. And tension is when uh, nobody knows. The audience and the characters <laughs> don't know. The hmm. um, the thing that's that I always come back to with that, and this is great, teaching for anybody interested it's so hard to do but like really like if you want to watch it done really well the best movie to do it probably ever is north by northwest because it constantly pivots around who knows what like it keeps turning the um what what you know that Cary grant doesn't know and then what Cary grant knows that um eve marie saint doesn't know so it's like it's constantly turning that uh, um that cycle of like knowledge that we share or, or what's unknown by us and what is what we're waiting for them to discover or what, what we don't know and they don't know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but that fascinates me because I feel like that's like masterclass writing to really mm-hmm. nail that. So if they did that well, um, yeah, that interests me. I'll tell you the thing about star studded cast that like doesn't do it for me. It's, it's not that alone, but it's like, if it feels like it's, excess i don't know how else Mm -hmm. to put it (laughs) like like i think once upon a time in hollywood has a star-studded cast but i'm like all about it because it just looks like that is going to be done in a way that's like unique and weird and there's something about this to me that just looked like oh they're just like kind of goofing around and they got all this money and i just don't feel compelled to see it but now i kind of do i'll be honest trailers man sometimes they they just ruin the movie i mean which is yeah. the perfect wrap up see, back to the proof of concept at the beginning. Because <laughs> a trailer is like a proof of concept you make after the movie. <laughs> All right. That is like the perfect ending. We have structurally made the perfect podcast. I hope everyone appreciates it. <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Hain. I have a podcast that's just tech nerdery. If you want more of the tech nerd stuff, it's 
called The Week in Film Tech. You can subscribe wherever there are podcasts or go to weekinfilmtech.com. I have two books out from Rutledge. If you go to rutledge.com and use the promo code ADS19, you get a 30% discount on Color Grading 101 or uh, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers. Uh, and I write a bunch of stuff at like No Film School. I, I'm doing a review of the Sigma FP right now that should be up sometime soon. Uh, and it, that camera's cool. I'm Catherine Tolentino. I'm a filmmaker. And you can see uh, some clips of my work at my website, www.catherinetolentino.com. And I also host a podcast called On Her Terms, where I interview women working in the film industry. Um, Lots of good interviews on there. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify and SoundCloud. I'm George Edelman. I'm the editor-in-chief at nofilmschool.com. You can find us on Facebook. No Film School is our page. Like us and follow us. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at nofilmschool. Um, Currently up on the site, we have a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, Soon coming out, we will have uh, a big piece on budgeting with a budget template. So if you want to know more about budgeting projects of any size, and if you want a nice little guide to use to create your own or to use the one we provide, uh, check that out. We will also have something up about the exposure triangle, which is kind of one of the building blocks of understanding photography, but it'll come with some cool graphics you can use and share. Um, we have a lot of cool content coming up about some of the movies that are being released from Deacons on 1917 to stuff on Parasite and Uncut Gems. And we are speaking with the filmmakers and we're really excited to get that stuff to you. So um, check us out and thanks for listening.